I'd like to begin by reframing what we're doing here a little bit or kind of remind you of what we're up to. And we're doing a series called Picture This. And in Picture This, it's, um, it's our way of talking about a single graphic uh, that explains something that we're reading in the Bible. And sometimes we use like pictures to illustrate things. And so each week uh, we're going through something in the Bible and then we have a central graphic that helps explain what it is we're talking about. And today I'm going to be talking about relationships. And if you didn't receive a, like a little handout on the way in, you can get up or grab one, or you can just look at your neighbors, but you'll be able to fill that in as we go along. And I'm talking about how relationships grow. And um, to, by way of introduction, um, has anyone here ever heard of the term mission trip? Does anyone know what that is? I just need to know how much I need to, like, by showing your hands, you will save yourself time and energy, and I'll end this faster. So, like, if a lot of people, okay, cool, a lot of people know. All right, cool. All right, so you know what a missions trip is. You go on this trip, and you, like, do things for God, and, like, maybe you build, like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, we're going to save the world. And you kind of go to a different country, and no one can speak the language, and, like, you work together, and uh, maybe you, like, build a church, or, like, you start something, and you hand out uh, candy to kids or whatever it is. Uh, and what I have found, and I've been on a number of these mission trips, and by the way, there's lots of debate on whether these are effective or not, but I've been on them, so sorry. And I'm going to talk about a little bit of that. What I have found on missions trips is that something happens relationally that puts the relationships in the microwave. It almost like it heats them up super fast and you get close to people real fast. I'm going to ask your, uh, your opinion again. Has anyone experienced that? Or you go on a mission trip and you walk away, thank you. So you know what I'm talking about. It puts a relationship in the microwave. Things heat up super fast. For instance, right when we were married, I went to Morocco on a missions trip. I'm not sure what we did there, but it was in Morocco. And like, I know we built some stuff or whatever. We're in Morocco and there were things that would happen that were so funny that bonded us together. Long story short, there's a pair of my underwear hidden in a wall in a bathroom in Morocco. I can't, <laughs> I can't tell the rest of that story, but maybe, but like, I <laughs> like, and you're like, and then you come out of the bathroom and they're, the, they're in the wall, you know, cause something happened. And like, people are like, what happened to your, like, they're like, what's going on? And you're like, well, I'm not wearing any underwear. And they're like, what's going on? And you're like, well, there's just a thin layer of old Navy between you and me right now. And like, you have these moments and everyone will die laughing and you're bonding. And then you go back and you share the stories. I remember being at Mazatlan. Have, does it seem like all of my mission trips have been exotic? So I go to Mazatlan and we were doing some work there and we were singing on the back of a truck. I remember going to Costa Rica and I remember eating everything in sight. So much so that every time I visited Costa Rica on a mission trip, I got sick. I would always have a day off. Because I would get ultra sick. And I remember people laughing at me, but me being sick, because there was something going on relationally that was building us together. Maybe it was the difficult circumstances. Maybe God was in our midst. Maybe like it was just really fun. Um, that happens on missions trip. And I've always wondered, like, why does that happen? Why do sometimes when you have relationships and you put them together and you move them out of their context, why does it actually build something in a stronger way than if you were just to show up here on the weekends or you were trying to go to the bar and try to meet people? Um, why do some relationships grow faster than others? Why do some relationships seem like they're working and firing on all eight cylinders? Why do some relations, uh, relationships, why do they come out of nowhere and seemingly they change our lives forever? 
On the other hand, there's other relationships. You work hard at them. You try to develop them. You show up in the relationship. And for a lot of reasons, those relationships don't work. They kind of fall apart. They never really quite become what they're supposed to become. Um, And so what I want to talk to you about is this idea of relationships, how they grow, how groups grow, how teams grow, because there's some actual science behind this. There's some actual study behind it. And we need to understand as a community how relationships grow, how they form, how they come together. And you, you, each of you has a network of relationships. How do those things function and grow? How do they become what they should become? What prevents them from becoming what they should become? Moreover, each of you is probably is, has a job or is seeking to get a job, and you work on teams on some level. How do the team dynamics work? Why do some teams work better than other teams? Well, we have some things that we want to show you today. So I've called today's talk, How Relationships Grow. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then let's invite God's presence uh, here once again, and uh, let's, let's talk about this idea. So, God, we uh, I ask that you would help me today to speak as I should. God, I ask that you would speak to people about relationships, about teams, about community, all the things. And, uh, yeah, uh, God, I, I, I felt it this morning when I woke up and I felt it in our pre-service prayer of God, but there's certain people here today who are, uh, bringing, bringing a heavy burden into the room. And God, um, I'm going to talk for a little bit, but I ask God that you would start talking to them now, that you would meet them here today. I ask that you would help us to encounter you. Like, I can't make that happen, God. Help us to see you and, and know you're with us and speak new life and truth in this moment right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I got real serious real quick. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Acts 2, Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, if you brought a Bible, that's amazing. Uh, if you have a phone, you can look at it there or you can follow along on the screen. And in Acts 2, what we get is a picture of the church. And leading up to this, Jesus was around. Jesus lived his life. He died on the cross and he rose again. And he's like, uh, I'll be back. And then he like ascends into heaven, like, I would have loved to see that moment. That would have been pretty cool. And so then there's Acts 1, and then there's Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit comes into the lives of the disciples, and into the, and the disciples pour out into the street. And one of the disciples, maybe you heard his name. His name is Peter. Peter goes out and gives the worst evangelistic message of all time. And he's like, you sinners, you killed Jesus. And they go, you got us. And 5,000 people become Christians in one single day. <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to be doing around town. (laughs) I won't. So he does that, and all these people come to faith, and all of a sudden you have this new thing called the church. And it's immediately there, and it's all wild, and everything, they're trying to figure out how to do this thing, and the disciples are working through it. And by the end of Acts chapter 2, we see this picture of community forming. And this is what we read. I'm going to read it to you now. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, what do we see here? We see this amazing picture of community, of relationships forming. And why did they form? Because Jesus did something on the cross by breaking the power of sin and also breaking the power of the things that separate us. So when that was broken, the Holy Spirit came into their relationships and the Holy Spirit began to do new things that they never expected. And we see that they were filled by awe by the many wonderful signs that were being performed. I mean, these were people that were just walking by and they would heal people and they would actually get healed. And it says they would do crazy things like, hey, we're going to sell all our possessions and give to people who have need. That was radical. That was different. And the only reason that happened is because of what Jesus did and the power of the Spirit doing something so powerful in their lives that they had no choice but like, God, we love this. We must do this. They wanted to do this. And I love this phrase. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were sharing food together. They were sharing life together. They were talking about, how are you? I am okay. And how are you doing? And you, you would like, there would, there would be something that would go beyond just the hellos and develop something that was deeper, something that was real. And why did they devote themselves to the disciples' teaching? Because they knew it was true. Their relationships were growing. Their friendships were starting to blossom and it felt like something never they had experienced before. They were growing deeper in their relationship with God and with others. They were trusting in new ways and they're also growing wider. We see that it was so attractive that people were like, man, I want to be a part of that community. There's something different about them. And the thing that was different, the spirit of God was living among them. And I think this is amazing. This is a, an amazing goal on the wall to be like, yeah, we should have community. And, um, and whenever you read these verses, you're like, yeah, we should do that. We should have more of that at Pacific City Church or whatever church you're a part of. And, and if you think about the relationships you're in, the groups you're involved with, uh, you go, okay, this is like a beautiful picture of like what community is. But like we recognize that community isn't ready-made like this. And it feels like this is a summary of like something that happened in the past, but it really kind of glosses over like what actually happens when we experience real community. And you feel like, in times for me, it can feel really idealistic. Like, oh man, it's so awesome. And if we're falling short of that, we're not the community of God. I don't think that's what was intended. I think what this is intended to do is give us a picture, a goal on the wall of what's possible for our lives. That God has community available to you that's probably deeper and wider and more healthy than what you're experiencing now. The question is, how do we get there? Well, there's this phrase. I forget where I heard it, but it, it goes like this. It goes, you need to work on it, not just in it. Like if you think about your job, like you're working in your job and you're doing everything, sometimes it's good to zoom out and think about like the characteristics and the, the big projects and what you're aiming at with your job. In the same way with community and with relationships, sometimes it's important for us to zoom out and work on it and understand how relationships work before we zoom back in and start to actually develop the relationships we have, which, which actually leads us to our central picture, this graphic of the day. 
I believe it's important for us to understand the broad strokes of how relationships actually form and develop. And while the Bible doesn't actually talk about this, we can actually assume that this is actually what was happening uh, in a very quick way in the Acts 2 church. And so what I'd like to present to you is something called the four stages of community. And I think we have a graphic for it. There it is. Boom. Write them down. So the four stages of community. This guy, this comes from a PhD named Scott Peck. And what you have is that not all community, you walk right in and you go, hey, wow, we're so close and we're bonded with each other. What usually happens first is you start with pseudo-community. Well, what is pseudo-community? Pseudo-community is defined by avoiding conflict. You don't really, uh, you're extremely pleasant with one another. You avoid disagreements. People want to be loving. Sometimes you withhold truth from each other just so you can get along and coexist in the world as we know it. Uh, Individual differences, they're minimized or unacknowledged or ignored. And everything seems to be running smoothly, but, um, you know, it's not. You're just kind of like, just kind of like getting to know someone. Uh, Pseudo-community is essential. Uh, you got to have, like, some niceties in the culture before you do anything, right? And so, like, what is, what is pseudo-community, like, realistically? Well, it's every party you go to. That's not deep friendship community. That's, like, just getting to know each other. It's every nightclub you've ever been to. Not that anyone here goes to nightclubs. But um, it's every game night uh, icebreaker if you're playing games with people. It's every 30 minutes of every Sunday service where everyone's kind of feeling each other out. And it's every first month or so in any community group or small group that you've ever belonged to. And so essentially what I'm trying to show you here is that everything starts at the pseudo community level. No one really jumps in and becomes deep friendships. What happens after that? Well, almost immediately following pseudo community is this thing called chaos. Chaos. You can write that down. Chaos is when all the differences begin to emerge. This is where people get into conflict with one, one another. This stage of relationship building in groups is completely unproductive. There's fight and there's struggle. Uh, team members not only attack each other, but sometimes you accuse the leader and want to throw that person out. You're like, this is not working. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And if you've ever been on a team with somebody and you realize on that team that people want to do things differently than you do them, Conflict arises. That's the chaos. If you've ever tried to go on a short-term missions trip, the first few days are like the worst because like someone has the allergy and some guy named Luke doesn't want to eat and you're going to have to throw him off the team. I'm not speaking of anyone in particular. I hope he doesn't listen to this. Um, (laughs) Or you start hanging out with people and then someone does something to offend someone or does something that's really wrong. Or you get a, a new glimpse into someone's life and you realize, man, I don't know if I like what I see. Or they're looking into your life and they're like, mm, I don't know about that. This is the chaos stage. All community, including community that we just read about in Acts 2, all community goes through this stage. It starts out nice and then you get to know people. There's a book by John Ortberg. You don't need to read it because the title has everything included in it. The title of the book is Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. That is the reality of life. Everyone's normal. And then you get to know them and you realize, oh man, that's, they're like not as good as I thought they were. Anyone that's gotten to know me in this church, they're like, ah, man, I, I think I should just hang out in the audience and not get to know them anymore. 
<laughs> uh, like, and that happens. And that happens because, like, I'm not that normal. And neither are you. I mean, you are, but you're not. So uh, everyone's normal. Until you get to know them, you realize that they have problems, they have issues. They want their way instead of your way. And of course your way is better. Everyone knows that. If they would just see it your way, everything would be better. But that is, therein lies the issue. No one sees it your way. And that is what causes the chaos. Chaos in relationships. All relationships that become meaningful in any way must go through this. Now, what we see in Los Angeles... And often what we see in young churches, and sometimes what we see in churches in Los Angeles, is that we never make it past past phase one and two. That people will go, they'll be in pseudo community, everything's great, let's go to the beach and play volleyball. And then all of a sudden something happens, they go, no way, I'm not doing that. And And they pull right out. And the reality and the consequence of that is that we never really experience community and then we bounce from church to church trying to find something that doesn't exist because we're afraid to go through the hard part, which is the chaos, the conflict that's required for anything. So beyond that, there, you get to this stage, and I think this is the strangest of the, of the four stages. I mean, four is the payoff, obviously, true community. But stage three is the most interesting. It's empty, emptiness. The, the way through chaos to true community is through emptiness. It's the hardest and it's the most crucial stage. It means members of the group or the community, they empty themselves of, uh, of the barriers of communication. They get rid of their preconceptions of others, their prejudices, their ideology, their theology, and their solutions. Sometimes they're able to give up their need to heal or fix a situation. Like, try to, like, okay, this is the way it needs to be. They, they release that right to do that, even though they're very right or they're correct. Members, instead, they shift. It's not about what I need to do to get these people on the same page. They begin to share their own openness. I mean, they, they open up to share their own brokenness. They owe their own defeats, their own failures, and their own fears, rather than acting like they have it all together. And this is when we start to feel less compelled to make sure that other people are on the same page in a community and we get more real about what's not working with us. And we have to, to get to this point. We have to go through it. But also, like, you don't start at this point either, too. Pseudo-community helps us get to know people. Chaos helps identify that things need to change. And then we start to open up and share and be like, hey, I, you know, this isn't, you know, here's, here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's what I'm responsible for. I know there might be other problems with this person or that person, but I need to get serious about what's going on with me. It's almost like a selfish phase where you focus less on everyone else's problems on the team or in the group, and you start to focus on what's going on inside of you. Uh, in faith walking, we call it a transformational conversation. Transformational conversation is a conversation that starts with you talking about you. Uh, and for the first part of a, a, a transformational conversation is vision casting. It's a hopeful description or a word picture about a future to which God is calling you. Where is God leading you? What is God calling you to be or to do? 
And then the second part of a transformational conversation, I think we have a slide for it. It says, how your story connects with God's story in the present moment. Where are you now? What are you hoping to experience? Where has God led you to date? Where are you still struggling? What are you doing to be in action? And what I love about this is it doesn't start with the other person's problem. It starts with, hey, you know, I want to, uh, I want to, I don't want to show up in the world and like try to be successful because if I don't, I will like feel really unfulfilled and it will bring me back to a childhood trauma. And you start by saying that and you start, here's what God's doing. God's leading me to trust him, even though things are difficult or something like that. Usually what happens if you give a conversation like that, you focus on what God's doing in you, you connect it to something real. Usually what happens almost immediately after you share something, somebody else shares what's going on with them. And therein lies uh, where the transformation actually happens. By you speaking out what God's doing in you and how you're hoping he'll work and move in you, the other person may share and you may actually bond and grow together. Something may actually change. And so, once you've made it through the chaos stage, it leads to the final stage, which is true community. And true community emerges as the group chooses to embrace not only uh, the light of the community, but the darkness. You become aware that this is not just a perfect thing, but you become okay with some of the realities that are in the community. Not everyone is going to call you back. Not everyone is going to do the things you want them to do in the community. Not everyone's going to be nice to you all the time. Uh, but you become re- aware of that reality, and you realize that having a healthy community requires a death to self and little deaths for everybody else. But as yourself, as you yourself dies to your agenda within the group, the group comes together and you begin to experience a real community. It's, a, it's described as a soft quietness that descends on the group because there's something real happened. There's trust happening. There's the sharing of real things between others that begins to happen. And uh, an extraordinary amount of healing begins to begin. And it's not just healing from any kind of broken relationships in the room, but it becomes healing from the things we've experienced in the past. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in a few rooms like this. I've been through the stages and I've realized that there is real community that exists. And no matter where I go in the world or what new friends I make or what new opportunities I find myself in, I think back to those moments with those people where there was a breakthrough, where God's spirit led us through the pseudo community, the chaos, my decision to kind of like lay down what I thought I needed to have in the community. And he brought me through and the others through to create new community where there was real friends, real support for one another, not just this pseudo light thing where you say hello and maybe someone prays for you and they ask you like weird Christian questions like, Hey brother, have you been washed in the blood? And you're like, I don't know what that is. You know, in the, in the, in the scenario, the person is holding my elbow while they shake my hand. You know, it's like a very serious situation. So beyond that, the true community that exists. Um, so, you know, uh, so that's, those are the four stages of community. Similarly, there's the four stages of teams. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, and then I kind of want to drive this home, and then we'll get out of here. Um, the four stages of teams is similar. So, um, and this one's a little more clever. You might be able to remember this. There's forming, storming, norming, and performing. In forming, 
It's characterized by uncertainty around purpose and leadership. Activities uh, focus on understanding objectives, roles, and assi- uh, assignments. Storming is emotionally intense stage marked with conflict and confrontation. Uh, in the norming stages, you start to figure out how the team or the group will operate. Uh, and there's, uh, there's an open exchange of information and you're willing to hear other people's opinions. Followed by the performing. You begin to collaborate with other people in the group and the team. And all of the team moves from a me to a we. And so whether you prefer to hear the stages of community or the stages of teams, it's the same process. Like communities, relationships, tight groups of friends, cliques, whatever you want to call it. They just don't show up and start to exist and be awesome. There's things we have to move through in order to get there. And so why share all this with you? Every group, every church, every circle of friends in one way or another has made their way through these stages. That's every team at work that you've ever been on will go through these four stages at some level or another. And on some level, it's safe to assume that the Acts 2 church had to walk through these things. And you will find that wherever you go and whatever you do, you will have to be aware of these steps, this process, if you're going to have real friends in that community. Whether it's this church, whether it's another church, whether it's at work and you're building a team and working on a project, everyone has to be aware of this and walk through these things. And friends, this is Jesus' vision for your life and for your community. That you would move beyond just the simple relationships of saying hello and coexisting, sitting in rows, facing me as I speak to you for 40 minutes, between 40 minutes and five hours. Before you get to what you need to be at, you have to walk through these stages. You will always have to face these things. And so a few diagnostic questions for you, if you're listening. If you could step back and assess the teams or the groups that you're a part of, whether it's a team at work, whether it's a community group, whether it's this church, if you could imagine a group that you're a part of, where is that group on the continuum? At work, what's it like with your boss? What would you say about your work? Are you in the chaos stage? Are you in the pseudo-community stage? Are you like really just deeply firing on all eight cylinders with your, with your boss with your, um, at your job? What would you say? Okay, someone's got an email. Um, what would you say about a community group? I know we have community groups. Where would you say your community group is in that process? I'd say I'd lead a community group. I'd say our group is somewhere in pseudo-community about to hit chaos. It's going to be really sweet. <laughs> And there's a bunch of people that have been visiting our community group, and they're like, uh, I have to decide if I want to keep going. But we're, we have to go through that. And we recognize that we have to go through that, that everyone's kind of pleasant with each other. But, like, if we want something more than that, there's going to be some uh, unveiling of who we actually are, unmasking of who we actually are to get to the real stuff. Well, how do you think about this church? Where do you think we are as a church? I know it's hard to say because new people are coming in and out all the time, and some people are getting or you know, have been involved since the very beginning about a year and a half ago. But where, where would you say we are as a church? Is it is it are we in the chaos? Have we made our way through? Are we still? And some of us are still in pseudo community. We're trying to figure out how to belong. 
Working on it, not just working in it, means that it's, we have to take time to understand where things are, where we should go, and what our responsibilities look like within the community. So we not only need to assess, hey, in all the relationships I have, in all the groups and, and uh, kind of teams that I'm a part of, uh, we kind of figure out where things might be at. But we also have to ask ourselves, and this is really applies to Jesus followers. If you're not a Jesus follower and you're here today, you're totally welcome. But for Jesus followers, people that have committed to following Jesus, who've experienced the power of his Holy Spirit, we are invited to do something in this process. And we see it in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Look what he says. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. That devoting of ourselves, that is our responsibility. That is our action that we can take in the community. And what I've found is there are things that you and I can do in a community that will help a community to flourish. And there's things that you and I can also do in community that will not help a community to flourish. They don't matter if we do them or not. And what I'm getting at is a different kind of understanding of what our responsibility is versus God's responsibility. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. We also see what Jesus said it in John 15. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And friends, what I see here is that how we devote ourselves, how we remain in Jesus, it leads us to a really clear understanding of how you and I participate in community. There is a difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. Faithfulness is what God calls us to do. It's what we're responsible for. I need to be faithful to show up to the community group on a consistent basis so that the context of community can happen and God can do something. Fruitfulness is, wow, we're really starting to see the spirit move among us and build relationships and trust that wasn't there. The Acts 2 church did it. They devoted themselves to these things. They obeyed where they saw God in action. But the spirit of God is the thing that flowed through it and made it powerful and made it real. This applies, faithfulness and fruitfulness idea applies to everything. You can be faithful in what God's asked you to do in your ministry at this church. You can be faithful to do the things God has asked you to do in your work. But you can't make your work grow like God's got to work through that. God's got to work through what you're doing in this church. Fruitfulness is something that God does. And what I love about the vine and the branches thing is that fruitfulness Productivity is a byproduct of our connectedness to God. All God is asking you to do is be connected to him. God, I'm open to you. I need to hear from you. God, speak to me. Okay, you've spoken to me. You've literally just asked me like 10 times to be involved in this person's life. I commit to do that. I don't know what's going to happen after that, God. And then all of a sudden, God starts to work through that relationship. This person's life changes. 
This person finds themselves free from addictions. This person finds themselves in real relationships with people that love them that never loved them before. And all you had to do was show up. You had to be faithful to the things that God asked you to do. That's what we're doing here. That's what we see in Acts 2. And that's what we see in John chapter 15. Fruit is a byproduct of our faithfulness. He's the one that does the good things. All we have to do is show up and stay connected to him. Does this make sense? Am I, am I getting through to Jesse? Definitely Jesse. Okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And others, uh, you know, hopefully uh, eventually. So, yeah. And so what do we do with this? Well, we ask ourselves, what are the ways that I can be devoted to the people of God? God, what are the ways that I can be connected to these people and participate in a growing community? God, I recognize that there's going to be pseudo community and there's going to be chaos and there's going to be emptying of myself and I have to get real honest with people. And eventually that's going to lead to real community. But God, the first step is, God, what do you ask me to do right now? Like, what, how can I be of value? How can I be uh, connected to these people? And when we get serious about what God's asking us to do, we become less serious about what we think Pastor Chris or other people in the church should be doing for us. We get more connected in with what our responsibility is and what we bring the table. And, and, and so another way to think about this is, um, well, as a church, what we believe is that God is at work and Christians get to join God in his work. We're not making up the work and asking God to bless it. God's already doing stuff. He has been doing stuff like for like a long time, like since the beginning of the world. Uh, I'm not going to give you a date on that. That would be really, (laughs) but like since the beginning of the world, he's been around, he's been doing stuff. He's at his work. Like he planned the birth of Jesus out and like, he kind of like predicted things through and he gave that through prophets. Like he's been at work and oftentimes we see him at work in other people. Uh, We don't have to go out and make the work happen in community. We join God with what he's already doing. God's already at work with people around you that you work with that you live with, people that are in this room right now. Like, before we got started the service, we prayed, God, what, what are you doing and how are you at work with other people uh, that are coming to the service today? We don't know what you're going to do, God, but we want to be open to what you're doing. We know that God is at work in other people. So what we do as Jesus followers is we get, uh, we kind of get rid of our own agenda. We say, God, you know, where are you working? Give me eyes to see where you're working in other people. And what we find is when we ask that prayer, God answers it. He shows us how he's working in Eric's life or my wife's life or other people's life. And sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes a crisis happens and they come to you and they go, I'm in a crisis. And you go, okay, God's at work in this person. They're going through a thing. And you have the opportunity to join up with it. Other times it's a little more subtle. God, how are you at work in other people? And I I think uh, if I could give practical ways, this is why we offer the welcome to church lunch. This is why we offer next steps, community groups. And I put up my own lecture on there, Teams by Christopher Meekins. That's, uh, there it is. Okay, yeah. So Teams by Christopher Meekins. It's a lecture that we do on how teams are are built. And I, I think that like, those are the ways that some of us, not all of us, that's the way we are faithful and show up. Look, you're new in the church. You're trying to figure out how to be connected. You recognize that you need real friendships that go beyond just going out and grabbing a drink every once in a while. Hey, maybe the place to start is welcome to church lunch. Or maybe it's getting involved in one of our community groups. These are the ways 
that we can show up and be faithful. Now, we can't make somebody be our friend. That's weird. And in fact, like, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I tried to make people be my friend, and it didn't go so well. Uh, I was out, and like, it smelled of desperation. <laughs> and, but like, over time, I figured out how to be a real friend and stuff like that. But it was, it was hard. Uh, and so you can't make someone be a friend. You can't make someone open up to you. You can't make someone be trustworthy for you to share. But what you can do is show up and trust that God's going to work through that. I'll say a final thing about this, and that is um, uh, sometimes when we show up to a church or a church like a community or a ministry, um, we'll look around the room and you'll just shake your head and you'll, and you'll be like, these people, <laughs> these are the people you want me to hang out with God. Or you'll think to yourself, if you're looking to date, you're like, these are the options I have for the dating pool. Like, God, like, what are we going to do here? <laughs> like, this is not working. It's not working. And like, I, I get that, that like, we come on a Sunday morning and we're all like facing one direction, like I mentioned, and like it's smaller than the rest of the dating pool or the rest of the relationship pool. And um, I don't know. I went through a couple of years where I really wasn't following Jesus in early college. And um, I just had this moment. I remember when I was really starting to seek Jesus again. And I, I would always say, like, I love Jesus but I just can't stand Christians. They're weird. They're always quoting Bible verses. They say things like, have you been spending time in the Word this week? And you're like, I don't know what that means. I did, but I just want to pretend like I didn't know. And, like, and they're, like, they're always like talking about you know, pseudo-community and chaos. And they're always talking about like these things that like no one else in my life talks about. It's so weird. And I remember complaining to God. I'm like, God, I'm going to be involved with you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Uh, but, like, please don't make me hang out with these people. They're so weird. And I remember, like, it was yesterday. I remember the Spirit of God uh, just speaking to me, like, in a moment. Like, I felt like he spoke to my mind, and he was, felt like he said, you know, Chris, I love those people. You need to love those people. And because I love you and shown you love, why don't you give that love away to those people? And it really cut me to the heart. I'm like, oh, you got me, JC. <laughs> and not like I was, he was guilting me into it, uh, but more like the Les Mis version. Like, I, I was free to love, you know. And it changed my perspective. Like, it changed, like, how I related to these people. And I still had all my old friends, and I kept them. But I found myself with a renewed sense of love for these people that I didn't understand. And you know what happened? Some of them became my dearest friends in college. And some of them changed my life. And some of them are listening right now, and they're still following Jesus. And some of them give us a monthly donation. <laughs> some of them, their lives were changed because I was in their life, and my life was changed because they were in mine. And friends, like, there's, like, different kinds of people here. And unlike that group that I had to wrestle with, there's some really great people in this room. And there is a really great vision for these people in this room. And that's the vision of true community where we're sharing life together, sharing resources, caring about each other, and seeing God work in powerful ways, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of the people that we've come to grow and love. The vision for us 
is real and it's possible. And we can have that through the power of Jesus, but not until we recognize that it's going to take some work. There's going to be a little chaos. There's going to be a little self, uh, you know, emptying. But on the other side of that are true friendships, true relationships where God can actually begin to do the thing that you've always wanted him to do in a community. I bring that before you to tell you I'm not going to force you to do anything. This one's on you guys. You have to decide. Is this the place where I can do that? And if so, God, how are you leading me? to join up with your work at Pack City. And if this isn't your church home and you're just visiting, if you are here, ask this question when you go back to your home church. God, how are you asking me to show up? How are you asking me to work in this community and be a part of it? Well, that's all I had to share. Why don't we all stand?